Well, if you have a Bible, friends, go ahead and open it to the book of James. We're going to be looking at the last part of chapter one this morning. If I haven't met you, I'm Matthew, one of the pastors here, and as I add my welcome to Josh's, uh, let me just specifically thank you for uh, your generous financial giving over the last month or so, especially. April was, as you know, the first month we had as a church where for no Sundays in that month did we gather in person, and we learned this past week that uh, giving to our general fund, which is primarily what we use for our our mission as a congregation, uh, had increased in April 15% over budget. (laughs) When I heard that, I just burst out laughing, and then I was convicted because I thought, Lord, forgive me for ever doubting your faithfulness. But but I want to share that with you for two reasons. One, just to praise God with you. And second, to thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, That is a stunning example of what comes as no surprise to me, knowing your character and your generosity. And I want to thank you for continuing to give generously to the work of the Lord, friends. Uh, That that giving above budget covered almost exactly the shortfall in income that we've seen uh, from the lack of opportunities we've had to rent out our facility like we normally do. So I just see God's care for us in that way and um, really grateful for your generosity. Father, would you help us now as we turn our attention to your word? I thank you that you are with us, that you are faithful, you are always good. Help us to be good listeners right now, I pray. Amen. I don't, I don't think I need to tell you that testing for the COVID-19 virus has been a hot topic in the news over the last few months. And most of the stories that I've read, at least, have focused on things like who's getting tested or how many tests have come back positive. Uh, what the newspaper that I read most mornings has yet to tell me is exactly how the COVID-19 test works. So I looked it up, because that's what we do when we're curious. We Google things. And here's what I read in a CDC testing guide for U.S. laboratories. RNA isolated and purified from upper and lower respiratory specimens is reverse transcribed to cDNA and subsequently amplified in the applied biosystem 7500 FASTDX real-time PCR instrument with SDS version 1.4 software. In the process, the probe anneals to a specific target sequence located between the forward and reverse primers. During the extension phase of the PCR cycle, the five prime nuclease activity of the TAC polymerase degrades the probe causing the reporter dye to separate from the quencher dye, generating a fluorescent signal. (laughs) Now, now I'm sure some of you biochem folks out there know exactly what I'm talking about, and you're critiquing me for all the words I mispronounced. (laughs) But for the vast majority of us, I think I might as well be speaking gibberish. I'm really glad... There's a defining biological mark that someone likely has or doesn't have the virus, right? I think we all are, but, but I don't understand really what it is. And it would take a whole lot of reading and studying to even start figuring that paragraph out. 
Well, friends, such is not the case with a test for genuine Christianity. Genuine Christianity doesn't just have a defining mark or an identifying characteristic. The defining mark is both easily understandable and readily visible. And you don't need a graduate degree to make sense of the results. James 1, 19-27 teaches us, listen, that the defining mark of genuine Christianity is persistent obedience of the word of God. Hear the word of the Lord. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. If you were with us last Sunday, uh, you might remember that, that James concludes the prior section of this letter in verse 18 by directing our attention to the greatest good and perfect gift God has ever given us. What's that? The gift of spiritual life through the power of the gospel. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he, God, brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What's James saying? What did we, what did we see last week? That spiritual life, okay, intimate relationship with God and, and all the blessings therein isn't something we create for ourselves, friends. It's something God creates in us, within us, through the person and work of Christ. No, no one brings themselves forth as a Christian any more than someone can bring themselves forth from a morgue. <laughs> okay, only Jesus can take your spiritually dead heart and make it alive. Okay, opening your eyes to see his glory and granting the gift of faith in him. And when that happens, Christian, you become what? Look at verse 18 again. You become a first fruits, a living example of the redemption and renewal that, that will eventually encompass the entire cosmos. As, as the Apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Okay, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
Okay, that's both a description of who you already are in Christ by virtue of his work in you, Christian, and a summons to live accordingly. Now, throughout the book of James, that this phrase, we'll see it over and over again, my beloved brothers, it shows up in verse 19, usually signals a transition to a new topic. That's worth noting. But what I don't want us to miss is the close connection between this section and the previous one. Because in verse 19, James sets out to answer the question raised by verse 18. What's that? Well, what does life as a new creation? Okay, becoming what we already are in Christ practically look like in the trenches of real life? Well, he gives a variety of answers in verses 19 to 27, but but they're all unified around a single principle. Okay, it's what I said earlier. Living as a new creation means persistently obeying the word of God. Okay, it's, it's what separates those who are spiritually alive from those who are spiritually dead or true Christians from, from cultural pretenders. Persistent obedience of the word is the defining mark of biblical Christianity, true Christianity. And, and James drives that point home by making several arguments about the nature of God's word and our response to God's word. Okay, so let's look at each of those in turn, okay? Number one, point number one, Here's his first argument. The righteousness salvation requires is produced by God's word. Yeah, let's think about that. Did did you notice that the very first area of our life that James points to in verse 19 is, is an example of how a new creation in Christ lives is not go preach God's word to millions of people. And it's not Go give away all your money to the poor. Sometimes Jesus calls us to those things. But but what does James say for all of us? Where does it start? It starts with the words that come out of your mouth. Now, I told you a couple weeks ago that to get ready, because James was going to meddle in your business. (laughs) Well, here he goes. Okay, what does he say? Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. You realize all three of those are are expressions of humility in our relationship with other people. So, So quick to hear says that we should be eager, most eager, to do what in conversation? To be a good listener. Okay, to work hard to to understand, asking good questions. Okay, not interrupting. Or try this on for size, spending the entire time that other person is talking, coming up with what you're going to say next to demolish the utter irrationality of their entire argument. You combine that with slow to speak, and it means that we choose in humility to be more concerned with understanding their perspective than we are with communicating our own. That's a high bar. Well, how about this admonition to be slow to anger? 
Well, it's, it's tied in with our speech because many of our expressions of anger are verbal. Now, now remember, some kinds of anger are good, okay? Being angry over injustice, for example, is a very good thing if what compels and controls your anger is a jealousy for the honor and glory of God. Okay, but we know from verse 20 that the kind of anger James has in mind here isn't good anger. It's sinful anger. It's not the anger of God, godly anger. It's the anger of man. It's, it's the anger we display when we, we lash out at our kids or, or rant on social media or insult a sibling or a coworker. Whenever we try to make somebody pay for the way they've hurt us. Now, don't get off track here. Okay, being slow to anger (laughs) doesn't mean that everything I've just said is perfectly fine (laughs) as long as you get there gradually. Okay, it means being what? Self-controlled in your speech. Okay, not being quick-tempered. As Proverbs 29, 11 says, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Well, why is that so important. Why, why, why would James go there? Well, look at verse 20. Humility in our speech, being slow to anger, matters a lot because all of our quick-tempered and sinful expressions of anger governed by the flesh do not what? They do not produce the righteousness of God. They, they don't produce godliness in an ethical sense. But, but you could say to that, okay, pastor, I get that. Try to clean up my mouth. But, but why is that such a big deal? I mean, no one's perfect, right? Well, friend, producing the righteousness of God, okay, practicing godliness in your speech could not be more important because your salvation depends on that. Our final salvation depends, Matthew 3, verse 8, on whether we bear fruit in keeping with repentance or strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. And so James is doubling down here on Jesus' warning in Matthew 12, 36, which really should get our attention. On the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Giving free reign, in other words, to gossip or slander or cursing or boasting or or sexual innuendo or manipulation or or every other kind of speech that, that tears down instead of building up. In other words, it isn't just wrong or unwise. It paves the way to judgment and condemnation. That's why it's a big deal. So what will produce the righteousness of God ethically that leads to salvation? Well, keep in mind here that that James says it is the righteousness of God. Okay, the standard isn't other people or the guy at the checkout line you heard this week who seems to have the worst temper that you know. Okay, the standard is God himself. The pattern of our speech must reflect 
his own. And what God has spoken, please hear this, is in fact the key to all our growth and change. Look at verse 21 with me. Notice what James says here. First, to produce the righteousness of God, we must put off all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Okay, that means repenting or or turning away from all ungodliness, which in the context of verse 19 points especially toward filthiness or wickedness in our speech. We have to turn away from that, put that away. But second, no less importantly, we, we have to receive with meekness the implanted word. Well, what's the implanted word? Well, it's the word of truth back in verse 18, that brought us spiritual life in the first place, isn't it? It's the word of the gospel. Okay, the good news of of all Jesus has done to save us from sin and death. And not just the historical facts of the gospel, but also all the implications of the gospel. Okay, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit does something amazing. He takes the word of God, starting with the gospel, and he writes it on your heart. Making you awake and alive to all that the word reveals about God's character and his ways. You know, things the Bible says that maybe you heard before, surprise, surprise, they start making sense. You're, You're not just reading words on a page anymore. Okay, you're seeing the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. God's word, that the self revelation of his glory, it's implanted on your heart. It happens when you become a Christian. But does that mean, you can probably anticipate the no to this question, right? That we've worked out all the implications of God's word at that point in our life for every area of life, speech included. Well, no, it doesn't. And that's a lifelong process that the Bible calls being sanctified. We're becoming more like Jesus. And that process happens. Here's the key lesson from verse 20. As we continue to receive the word, which means continuing to embrace and trust and obediently work out all of the implications of God's word. Let me give you a couple examples, okay? Let's make this practical. For example, what will deliver you from verbally retaliating against a family member When they hurt you, hypothetically speaking, it's not the strength of your own willpower, friend. It's what? Choosing to receive Romans 12, 19 by trusting God to vindicate you. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Or how about this? What what will free you from berating or manipulating your spouse, those of you who are married, into heeding or bowing down to your counsel. It's not the strength of your own willpower, friend. It's choosing to receive Philippians 1 sex by trusting that the whole process of their growth and change is ultimately God's work, not yours. And I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Or try this one. What what will enable you to stop boasting or selfishly talking 
all about your life and your accomplishments and making everything you do on social media all about yourself instead of taking a genuine interest in your friends or how they're doing. What will help you to walk in that kind of humility in your speech? Well, it's not the strength of your own willpower. It's choosing to receive Mark 10, 45 by meditating on the wonder that God himself, okay, that the most glorious being in the entire universe did exactly that for you, putting your interests above his own. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, James' point here is that it's the implanted word, God's word, centered on the truth and the implications of the gospel, which alone is able, verse 21, to save your souls. God's word does the work. God's word has the power, and God will use his word because it does the work and because it has the power to enable you to grow in godliness, speech included, readying you for salvation on the final day of judgment. But here's the application point. You have to choose to receive it, okay? Merely posting, I'm not criticizing any of you who've done this, but but merely posting on a little note card on your bathroom mirror, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Will not change anyone. It's not magic. You have to choose to receive God's word by relating to him in light of who he has revealed himself to be in his word. And then, and only then, will the word begin to transform you from the inside out. I love how Douglas Moose says it. Both the gracious initiative of God and the grateful response of human beings are necessary aspects of the gospel. Amen. So the righteousness salvation requires is produced by God's word. That's where James starts. And in that struggle, in that spiritual battle, because even as I'm talking about that and illustrating that, you you can feel the struggle, right? That's hard work. There lies a great big danger. Okay, a risk looms in that fight to receive and keep on receiving and keep on receiving. There's a risk in that, that that I would argue gets larger the longer you followed Jesus. You know, a lot of times people say things like, you know, I'm just so grateful for all the ways that um, winning a battle against sin or following Jesus is easier now than when I, I first began to try to do that. And, and I thank God for that, and we should rejoice in that. But, but there are other things, friend, that get harder the longer you've been following Jesus. And one of those is the danger of thinking that we're receiving God's word simply because we've heard it or we know what it says. Okay, point number two, receiving God's word means persistently (laughs) obeying God's word. Let's think about this. So to all, all you parents out there, especially parents of young boys? Have you ever surveyed their disheveled clothing or their, their bird's nest of a hairdo or the, the food all over their face and, and said aloud to them, son, 
Did, did you look at yourself in the mirror when you were in the bathroom a few minutes ago? Well, what's the classic response nine times out of ten? You know, something like, yeah, dad, is something wrong? <laughs> to which you find yourself, I find myself saying, hmm, where should I begin? <laughs> Why well, I bring up that scenario because it just illustrates how, how possible it is, right? To look at yourself in a mirror, as James says in verse 24, to go away and immediately forget what you saw and what you really need to do in response. So you don't wash, you don't shave, you don't pluck the large hair growing out of your nose. For, for all intents and purposes, looking into that mirror physically has no effect on your actions. It's possible. And that, James says, is exactly what we are like when we hear God's word, but we fail to put it into practice. Look at verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, now no one likes to be deceived, right? And yet it is incredibly easy, friend, to deceive yourself to convince yourself that you are a genuine Christian when when actually you're not. Well, how do we do that? When we think we're good with God because we go to church or because we read our Bible or because we know the Bible or we can give all the right answers. You you might even pride yourself on, on being doctrinally informed or theologically accurate. Unlike all the sad species of Christians out there who can't even begin to understand the finer points of Reformed theology. Well, here's a question for you, friend, and for me. When was the last time that you read God's word or listened to a sermon and you experienced the gracious gift of conviction? When that happened, If that happened, how did you respond? Did you write down what you heard? Pray for God's help to change? Did did you share where you sensed the Lord challenging you to grow with a spouse or a close friend and and ask them to pray for you or hold you accountable? What if I walked into your living room or your bedroom right now wherever you are, and said to you right now, how have you grown? Or how have you been fighting to grow as a Christian over the last few months? Would you have anything to say? Or or would you struggle to come up with something? The command in verse 21 to receive with meekness or humility the word of God, it requires two actions on our part, okay? First, we have to look into the perfect mirror of God's word. Okay, asking the Lord, as David did in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and, and know my thoughts. And that's a prayer God will always answer, friend, because of the nature of his word. It searches us, it knows us, brings conviction, but, but it won't happen automatically. We have to be willing to look. We have to read the word, listen to the word, and think about, Listen, not just what it says, but the claim it makes on your life as a result of what it says. 
How, how, how do, is the word of God in this chapter, this verse, not just saying, know this, but picking you up by your shirt collar and saying, run that way, or don't run that way. Why is that necessary, friend? Why is it necessary to embrace and walk out the call in Scripture to think and feel and act differently? It's because merely looking into the mirror and seeing what is true has never changed anyone, right? We have to choose to apply what we have seen by fighting to think and feel and act accordingly. Remember, the Lord didn't inspire his word to inform you. He inspired his word to transform you. He could care less about how much you know is true about him, right? Even the demons believe God is one and shudder what what matters and what they refuse to do along with any sinner who remains in rebellion against the works and ways of God is what? Faithfulness to obey. And not just here or there or periodically or when it's convenient or when we feel like it or when someone else makes us, but willfully and joyfully and persistently. Look at verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I want you to just pause here and think about something. Because we could skip over this too quickly. Why does James call God's word the law of liberty? Did you catch that? You know, many people think true liberty is unfettered individual freedom to do whatever your heart desires. No strings attached. You know, the Bible says that's not liberty at all. That's slavery. You're enslaved to the shifting and contradictory passions within you. And in a broken and fallen world, that's a disaster in the making. True freedom, real liberty, is freedom from slavery to your natural desires, so you are actually able to become what God created you to be, friend. God's word is the law of liberty in the sense that it reveals the depth of our sin, our need for a savior, and and God's provision in Jesus. It sends us running to the cross where we discover to our eternal joy, full forgiveness and triumph over the power of sin and death. It announces deliverance from the kingdom of darkness and sets us free to love and follow Jesus. God's word does that. And as if that's not enough, what's it do then? It marks out the path of obedience like airport lights on a runway to our new master on which we quickly discover that that path and only that path is the path of joy and life and peace. Why? Because we're living the way we were created to live. It's like a cheetah set free from a a miserable cage in a downtown zoo to chase gazelle on the plains of Africa. Or as Proverbs 12, 28 says, in the path of righteousness is life. 
and in its pathway there is no death. Friends, what James is saying here is that the gospel isn't freedom from obedience. It's freedom for obedience. Okay, it's the happy announcement of liberty from sin that so easily entangles that we might live and run in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And that's the secret to joy, my friends, which is why James could confidently say that the doer who acts will be blessed in his doing. So don't deceive yourself, okay? If your life doesn't reflect, it's really simple. A pattern of obedience to God's word. You are not a Christian. Because those in whom the word has been implanted and those who continue to receive it are careful and persist in doing what they have heard. Hearing doesn't change anyone. It's necessary, but the transformation is in the doing. And indeed, the doing reveals what? Whether we've actually heard in the first place. So, last big question here, stage in the argument how do you know, if this is such a big deal, whether you're a hearer who forgets or a doer who acts? Okay, if, if receiving God's word, in other words, our second point, means obeying God's word, how can you tell if you're actually obeying? Well, here's where James really helps us in verses 26 to 27. Point three, obedience to God's word is strikingly visible. <laughs> it's not hidden. It's visible. In all kinds of relationships. And in verse 26, James reaches back to the first warning in verse 19 against the absence of self-control in our speech. What's he say? If anyone thinks he is religious and is not bridle, that's a horse riding word, right? Shout out to Selah and my Bowman friends who know exactly what this is all about. Doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. It's not genuine Christianity. It's it's a sham because it doesn't result in any kind of self-control of your speech. So what's the alternative? What what, what does faithfulness to obey God's word look like? Well, we'll self-control in our speech, controlling our tongue the way a rider controls a horse as the first example. But then James gives two more in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, we can miss this, but, it, but in the first century, orphans and widows were in a heap of trouble. I mean, they, they still are today, but, but in the first century especially, that, that was a recipe for utter deprivation. Okay, socially, economically, Absent outside intervention. They, they didn't have a foster care system. They didn't have a social security, a government safety net. They, they were completely on their own. And isn't it interesting that James makes a beeline for how we relate to the most weak and helpless members of society? You know, when we think of really religious people, you know, exemplary Christians, who do mighty exploits for God's kingdom. Often we think of missionaries who who give it all up and move halfway across the world or evangelists who who preach to millions or maybe some of you have even thought, you know, it's the pastor who does 
full-time ministry and doesn't have to bother with a secular vocation. Those are the religious people. That's where it's at. Oh, that I could get there one day. Well, James doesn't point there. As good as those things can be, James, James points to quiet, unnoticed, and persistent acts of compassion. Loving people who have little to no ability to do anything for you in return. Loving people the way Jesus did. He's reminding us that that compassion isn't an optional trait for the Christian friends. It's not a spiritual gift that God gives the church deacons so the rest of us can can applaud from afar, okay? Christ-like love for the weak and the vulnerable is one of the key tests of genuine Christianity. And it includes specific care for orphans and widows as God gives you opportunity to do that, but it also manifests itself in countless contexts where you choose to sacrificially love someone who is weak and lonely by sending them the gift of your money from afar so you can wash your hands of their problem. (laughs) No, by what? What does James say? By visiting them. And through the inevitable messiness of personal relationship, you remind them that God sees them, that God is with them, and God cares for them. And if I could, church, let me just thank you for the way so many of you have done that really well over the last eight weeks we've been in this. You've moved toward the weak and the vulnerable. And, And for that, I thank you, I commend you, and I charge you with James. Let's keep doing that more and more. Do that in your family. Do that in your neighborhood. Because verse 27 isn't just about the folks who serve on open table or, or the food pantry ministry at Kingsway, okay? It's a call to a lifestyle of active personal compassion. Well, here's, here's the final and, and equally visible example of how obeying God's word plays out in life, being a doer, and it's our relationship to the world, which Dan McCartney helpfully defines as the human environment standing in opposition to God. And this is a theme that James is just going to keep coming back to, just like our speech again and again and again. Reading, working through James is kind of like riding on a merry-go-round. It's like, huh, I've seen that before. I've seen that before too. Maybe there's a reason for the repetition. It's not just the sinful desires in our own heart that get us in trouble, right? It's the air we breathe that, that urges us to find our joy in the, the acquisition of possessions or discover our true selves through sexual experimentation, or, or to buy into the notion that loving people means you never say anything that's remotely offensive. You know, the culture we live in, it affects our souls more than we realize. And unless we're vigilant, thinking carefully about how what the world tells us to do compares to what God's word calls us to do, if we don't do that, then we will inevitably become corrupted, spiritually stained and and eventually destroyed through the influence of companions known and unknown who dismiss the, the backward or the constraining irrelevance of fearing the Lord. You know, in the, in the Christian environment in which I grew up, just to illustrate and apply this briefly, 
You know, we, we talked a lot about the importance of being different, of not buying into the world's way of, of doing anything, of, of humbly choosing, courageously choosing to run hard in the path of God's commands. I, I, I was steeped in that as a young person. But at risk of generalization, I fear as a pastor that in many ways the tide has shifted for many of you young people. And while worldliness is by no stretch a young person's problem, I hear far more young people today preoccupied and even boasting about how much they are in the world in contrast to all those legalistic Christians of old who watched Veggie Tales until they were 18. And to you, young man or young woman, I warn you that how wise you are in the way of the world is no cause for boasting. Because it might score you a few points with non-Christian friends, make you feel more accepted or more cool or more with it. But I warn you, you will gain their approval at the cost of your soul. Because no one can serve two masters, right? You can't love the world, love God. I mean, do we have to remain in the world in order to love the world the way God does? Absolutely. But listen, if remaining in the world causes you to progressively resemble the world more than you resemble Jesus, then you, my friend, have exchanged God's mission in the world for your own goal, your own mission. And so I charge you as James does, don't say you're obeying God. If your affections and your priorities and your closest companions look no different than anyone else in the world, okay? Obeying God is always strikingly visible in our speech, in the way we move toward the weak and helpless, and in our diligence, our persistence to keep ourselves unstained from the world. What do all three of those arguments push on and get behind? The defining mark of genuine Christianity is persistent obedience to the word of God. Lord, all the TV producers would say that dead airtime is a terrible thing. <laughs> but we know better. Because we need to slow down and be quiet and listen to your spirit. And so I pray, Lord, right now, that as the good shepherd you are, that you would guard this precious flock for whom you died from the great danger of thinking it is well with their soul, absent, persistent obedience to your word, of deceiving ourselves by being a hearer and not a doer. Lord, I pray especially for the folks listening to me right now who have followed you for decades. And they have heard 
probably everything I've said today, many times. Lord, that's not just okay. That's good. Because this danger never goes away. And so I pray especially, Lord, for those in our church who are in the, what the news in the world right now would call the high-risk category for coronavirus. I pray that this time of social distancing would, would be marked for them in particular by persistent, diligent, pronounced growth in godliness. And that those who have heard your word for the most decades in our church would be the leading examples of doing it and applying it and receiving it day after day after day. And Lord, I also pray for those of our number who are younger and for whom being stained by the world is such a difficult battle. I ask, Father, that you would cause them to hunger for the glory of God more than the glory of man. And I pray that they too, on the lower rung of the age ladder, will lead the charge in persistent obedience to the word of God. Lord, we thank you that your word is powerful and mighty and transforms us from the inside out. Oh Lord, help us to receive it and keep on receiving it until the day you take us home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.